Good morning, church family. Please read with me our passage, Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few months ago, I, I preached on work uh, during our Man is Dead series. That whole series was this kind of big idea that if we don't find an identity from God, right? If our identity hasn't been given to us from the Lord, from God, if we aren't created beings that God has given purpose to our lives, if we don't have an identity that comes from God, then we have to go out and find our identity in some other way. We have to go and kind of prove our worth in some kind of way. And, and one of the ways that people have done this, one of the ways that people have gone out to try to find an identity for themselves is in work. And one of the things we said that in that kind of environment, if that is your kind of heart or posture, then it's very easy for work to become an idol. It, it can become everything to you. It, if it's your source of identity, then work always will win. Work will always be the king of your life. You'll always choose work because it's, it's where you're receiving your, your source of being or identity or hope. But another thing we said in that sermon series is that we're, we're in a moment today where work, I believe, at least in kind of our culture in the West and in maybe educated larger metropolitan areas is, and, and this is true of a lot of different cultures, uh, uh, obviously, but where we're seeing rather than work being an idol, <laughs> People just aren't working at all, right? People are being idle. And, and they're finding an identity not in work as much, but in their idleness or in their leisure. Uh, you know, it's interesting, not too long ago in human history, people uh, found their identity from their family, right? You were the son of John, right? Or John's son, right? Now, later on, as kind of history moved along, people kind of found an identity in a location, especially as people started moving around. They would identify with where they came from. So even, even me, Jason Dees, my last name is, uh, my people come from Scotland, from the Dundee region of Scotland, the Dees, um, the Dundees, of the Dundees area. Uh, as kind of time progressed, people found more identity in the things that they did, their work, right? So this is where you get... Last names like Miller or Smith or Farmer, right? Um, and, and that kind of culture is carried on, right? I mean, most of us, we, one of the first questions we ask people uh, is, you know, hey, you know, what's your name? What do you do, right? What is it that you do as a vocation? How do you work? Where do you work? It's interesting. That's changing. People are identifying less and less with what they do or where they work. And more and more with their leisure activity, with, with things that they just like to do, right? So people are identifying these days as, you know, a ro I'm a rock climber. 
even though they may not actually get paid, they're not actually a professional rock climber. That's not their vocation. That's just kind of how they understand themselves to be. Uh, or, uh, you know, people identify themselves with titles that you don't even really know what it means. You know, people will be an influencer, a motivator, Jason Byers' favorite, a thought leader, right? Like, what does that mean if you're a thought leader? But, but you see what's kind of happened is, is people are identifying less and less with vocation and actually more and more with leisure, with something else. Now, that's not all bad. I actually think we're, what we're experiencing now is because work in kind of Western culture has been such an idol for so many people, it's, it's been too dominant a force. We're, we're feeling the pendulum swing away from that. But I want to spend a little time, and we're going to talk about this over the next couple of weeks. How, how do we find a right rhythm for work? The Bible is so helpful in that in so many ways, it gives shape to your life. I want you to hear that. The Bible is this shape-giving revelation of God. God is giving your whole life shape in what he's revealed to us in the Bible. And, and one of the things that God has revealed to us is the shape of how we should work and how we should rest. In fact, in the very beginning of Scripture, God puts forward this rhythm or this pattern that for six days we shall work, we shall do the things that we're called to do. And that's not just our, you know, vocational or outside of the housework. That's our work, all of our work, including the work we do for our home, for our house. But then on the seventh day, we're called to rest. And again, we're going to talk about this more next week, but even this idea of rest has been misunderstood. Rest is not just leisure. A, a lot of people's rest these days actually can create more stress or more anxiety. It's, it's a rest in the Lord. It's a, it's a rest in worship. It's a rest for, toward the things of God. Again, more about that next week. But, but this week, as we talk about work, uh, we see so much in this passage. And again, there are, there are a lot of things that we could look at um, in all of these uh, passages in Genesis 1 through 3, obviously. We're just sort of looking at this one small section today, the, the curse that God brought forth to the man in the face of sin. But we see kind of in this section five things. So I have five points today, so I got I to get moving. God's order in creation, God's blessing of work, God's curse of work, God's curse of life, and then finally, God's continued work, God's ongoing work. So let's look at God's order in creation. Something we see very clearly in the creation account is God's order. God is up to something. God is doing something uh, in the way that he created the world. And so what we see is God creating man and placing him over creation God gave the man a helper, this woman. It was not right that the man would be alone. The man needed the woman in order to uh, obey the commands that God had given him. He could not fill the earth alone. He couldn't take dominion alone. So God created the man. He gave him the woman. And together, as they loved God, as they obeyed God, as they listened to God, he gave them rule or dominion over the rest of creation, or I'll just say over the, 
the creatures, the things that, that God had made. And so there was going to be an order about the world as the man and the woman listened to the voice of God, obeyed the order of God, and ruled over the things that God had made, this, these creatures, this creation that God had given them to care for and to, to see about. This is God's clear order in the creation account, in the creation narrative. But what happens when sin enters the world? And this is what always happens when sin enters the world. As we remember the story from Genesis 3, Satan embodies the serpent or one of the creatures. And the man and the woman were deceived by Satan. They became enamored by the creature. They became enamored by the creation, the, the fruit. They forgot about the command of God. God's command, God's order was that God gave, God created the man with the helper of the woman to together rule over creation. And what happens in sin? It's the exact opposite order. The creature went and deceived the woman who then led the passive man into sin against God, to disobey God's order. It's interesting when you look at the text. Look at uh, the verse 2. The serpent has come to Eve. And he said, did God really say you shouldn't eat of the trees of the garden? And she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what's interesting about this is in this passage, you actually see a hint of God's order of creation. God actually hadn't commanded the woman to not eat of the fruit, at least not in the text that we have. She was created after God gave this command. But God had told the man these things, and he did a good job. He, he had his new bride. He was leading his family well, if you will. He said, hey, we're not supposed to eat of this tree. Another kind of interesting little hint in the text, God actually never commanded the man not to touch the tree, right? But I can imagine him with Eve saying, hey, here's the garden, but there's a tree over there. And I can imagine him saying, look, we're not going to eat of that tree. We, let's not even touch the tree. Like, let's not even go near that tree. But watch what happens when this order is reversed. Verse 6. The woman, after being deceived by the serpent, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate of it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. The creature comes to the woman with the man standing right beside her. It's interesting that the rest of the Bible talks about the woman being deceived, but it always talks about the man's sin. Adam doubted God in this moment. He was passive in this moment. He was just as culpable in this moment, standing by, and rather than initiating, rather than saying, hold on, we're supposed to rule over these creatures. We're, we're supposed to order this garden. He begins to let the creature order him and order his family. It's the exact opposite of God's design. So not only do you see God's order in creation, we, we also see there, that there is a blessing of work. In a lot of creation myths, uh, work is not a good thing. Uh, I don't know if any of you all from your literature class and 
school read like Enuma Elish, which is an ancient Near Eastern creation account. Uh, or maybe you remember the story of Pandora, the Pandora's box from Greek mythology. Work in, in a lot of these creation narratives is always the result of chaos, of disorder. It's not good. <laughs> Work came in. But the Bible is different. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a result of disorder. In fact, actually work is part of God's design. We see this all throughout uh, this creation account. Look, look at Genesis 1.26. I want to show you all a few passages here. This is God proposing the creation of the man and the woman. What does he say? He says, let them have dominion, right? There's a responsibility. Let them be the, the ones to work and to see over the things that I have created. Genesis 1, 28, God created the man and the woman. He says, subdue the earth, right? There, there is an action uh, impulse there. You, you are to take dominion. You are to subdue the raw materials. You're to, to put in order, along with my order, the things that I have created. Genesis 2, 2, uh, after God had created the heavens and the earth, it says that God finished his work. It's an amazing thing to understand that God is himself a worker and he rests from his work. Of course, implementing this pattern. Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and the woman and he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Again, this is all before sin. This is all before the fall. Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. The, the Hebrew for helper is Ezer. This is, there's an implication even in the word that, that the woman is there to accompany the man in the things that God has given him to do. As I said before, the man could not fill the earth. He could not take dominion alone. God gave him a helper to do these things. Verse 19, Adam names the livestock, again, showing his dominion. And in, and in this time, there's, there's work going on, but it's all in God's order and the creation is blessed and God is glorified. All throughout this passage, this narrative, we see God's order here, this pattern of work and rest. Now, work is not ultimate. I want you to hear that, right? Rest is not ultimate. What is ultimate for Adam and Eve and what is ultimate for you is fellowship with God, right? The, the purpose of humanity, the purpose of your whole life is you would know God, that you would glorify God, that you would delight in God, right? That's the, that's the whole reason of your existence. That is the chief end, that, that you would have fellowship with God, that you would bring glory to God in that fellowship and that you would delight in knowing God. But I want you to hear this. One of the ways that that is worked out one of the ends that God has given us so that we can know him, so that we can bring glory to him, so that we can delight in him is this pattern of work and rest. So long as it is in God's order, when it falls out of God's order, when we become enamored by the creation, we start listening to the creation rather than the creator, we break fellowship with God. We do not glorify God and we do not delight in his presence. And the man is dead series, I gave three reasons for work. And I just kind of want to go through them very quickly here. Um, first, God commanded us to work, right? It, it's a means by which um, God is showing what his order is, that we would work and have dominion over what he has made. 
Second, through work, through our work, and, and I want to say, I'm not just talking about paid work here, but through our work, God cares for his creation. How do we eat, right? How do any of us eat? This very basic thing that we need to live. We eat as a means by people, someone, either us or someone else, working, planting, harvesting, catching, trapping, cooking, whatever it is. How do we have medicine, right? There's work involved. How do we have housing? How do we have this building? All of these things are evidences of God's grace to us that have been given to us. The means that God has used to care for his creation is work. Obviously, again, homemaking, one of the most important jobs. How much care does God give to children through people who are committed to staying at home, working in the home? That's an amazing means of God's grace. God cares for his creation through work. And this happens at every level, from the doctor who delivers the baby to the person who cares for the dying, to the person who creates a communication channel, the person's in transportation, the person who's in education, the person who builds buildings, all of this is means that God is using to care for his creation, and he uses work. One of the things we talked about in our teaching meeting this week, even worship, even the elements of a Christian worship service involve work. I mean, a sermon, right? All the tests, like this is work to, to put this together, to think about these things. Music, right? It requires work. It requires the ordering of creation, even the elements of communion, right? It's not like God says, just eat some wheat and eat a couple of grapes, right? It's not that we eat just natural goods. No, they're produced goods. They're, they're goods that actually require some sort of production. When we work, we are part of God's means for caring for us, for showing care to his creation. And then final reason is we work, when we work, we're like God who works. The, the Bible begins with God working and resting, and when we work and rest rightly, we're actually like God. We have fellowship with God in the way that we're like God. Now, this doesn't always mean that we like our work, right? But we, we're, we're joining with God in something when we do work. In fact, I would even say sometimes it's good to have jobs that you don't like, but that serve good purpose. You know, parents, I would just say, you know, we live in an age where a lot of us can get jobs that we really like and feel called to and feel gifted toward. That is a blessing from God. That is not what most of human history has experienced. But parents, as you're raising your children, push them toward jobs that they're probably not going to like. Like get, make them do the fast food job. Make them do, and maybe you love the fast food job, but Make them do the job that's, that's hard. Make them do the job that's gritty. Make them do the job that they, they don't really look forward to going to, but that serves purpose. There's something behind it that's good. You know, Paige, I'm so amazed by Paige all the time, but when Paige was in college, she worked three jobs and went to school. I mean, that's an incredible task. She paid her way through college, but one of her jobs, and maybe she didn't like many of her jobs, but one of them I know she particularly didn't like, she was the cafeteria dishwasher. Now, that's a college cafeteria dishwasher. That's not the best job. Um, there's probably some pretty gross stuff on that plate. But it serves an amazing purpose. God actually, through her dishwashing, 
was caring for his creation. I mean, you don't want to eat on a dirty dish, you know. It's gross. It spreads disease. It, it's, it's, it's a little job. But it's a means by which God is actually showing his kindness and grace. And Paige said when she was in college, she would have to remind herself of these things to try to find joy in this job that she really didn't like. But it, so it's good to have a job that, that just serves people. But it's best when you do have a job that you know that you're called to that's also achieving God's purposes. And I want to encourage you in this. Do you have a job that you know that you're called to that's achieving some sort of purpose from the Lord? And that doesn't mean that you're in ministry. I'm not saying you should all be missionaries. I'm saying, but it's the work that you're doing, something that God has equipped you for that you know is achieving his purpose. I, I have a friend who, um, he does very well. He makes a lot of money, but his job... Um, it doesn't really serve a great purpose. In fact, it kind of preys on an addictive attitude that a lot of people have, okay? And he knows it. I mean, he knows it's not really good, but he makes a lot of money. And he doesn't really like the job, but he makes a lot of money. And so he's always coming to me and he's saying, you know, I need to give this money away. He feels bad about his vocation. And the way he's like reasoning is, well, I make a lot of money and I can give money away and that will be good. I just want to say, look, I want you to be generous. I want you to be generous to Christ's covenant, Right? But I'd so much rather you spend your one short precious life in some sort of a task, a profession, a calling, a vocation that you know God has gifted you to, he's called you to, that's serving people. And again, this is not ministry. This doesn't mean that you're, you're all called to ministry. Dorothy Sayers, who's written a lot about work, says this. This is so good. Listen to this. Let the church remember this. Remember this, every worker and maker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. You're called to serve God in your profession or trade. Work is not just the means to an end, right? It's not just, hey, get an easy job so you can volunteer at the church or get a job where you make a lot of money so you can give money to ministries. No, no, no. That, that may be part of it. God may give you abilities to do that. But, but in that profession or trade, you're actually called to serve God. The apostles complained rightly when they said it was not meat. She's quoting from the old King James. It was not meat that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. Their vocation, what God had called them to do, was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation it was to prepare meals and to prepare them beautifully might with equal justice protest it's not meet for us to leave the service of our table to preach the word, right? Is that the way that you work, right? Again, I'll just use myself. I mean, I, I feel so called to this. I think I'm doing what God has called me to do, but I want everyone here, whether you're in real estate or in education or in medicine or in construction, whatever it may be, that you would, you would feel so called by God that you're, that you're living out his purposes in your life, that you're serving others. Work is a good. It's blessed by God. He's commanded us to work. It's incredibly, uh, it, it's, it's the means by which God cares for his world and we should feel God's pleasure in our work. So then why is it so hard, right? This is our third point. And this brings us to our text, really these curses of work um, it, it's interesting. 
When you think about what the creation account, what had God given the people? Okay, what had he given Adam and Eve? And he'd given them life, right? He breathed the breath of life into them. He'd given them, I'll just, I'm gonna use the word marriage, but you could put the word companionship here. It's not just marriage. He'd given them the gift of companionship, marriage, one another. But then he'd also commanded them to do some things, right? So he commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to have children. And he commanded them to work or to take dominion, to subdue the earth. Two blessings from the Lord and then two commands from the Lord. And then sin came into the world. And what happens? It's interesting. Look at verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. And some of you obviously have felt this. This gift of God that was meant to be so good now comes with this Great reminder that things are not as they should be. Let's keep going. 2.16 again, it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, this is a misunderstood text, but it's a, it's a passage about strife that ensued between people as the result of sin. Before the fall, the man and the woman didn't disagree. Why? Because they were both living in light of God. They were listening to God. They were following God's order. But now things have been disordered. And what enters? Strife. There's different desires. There's an implication of a warring between the man and the woman. So all of a sudden, this relationship has been so marred to the man. Verse 17, it says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Work, which is blessed by God, which he uses to care for his creation, that when we work, we are like God. We're obeying his command. Now all of a sudden, this is marred. It's hard. It's difficult. And then, of course, even life itself. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You know, these curses, you, you read about them in the Bible, and, and, and if you're new to Christianity, if you're kind of new to the church, and I even use the word curse, you're like, what is this, like a medieval church here? Like, who uses the word curse anymore? Well, there's, there's reasons for the curse, and the curse is very real. Uh, the first reason is, is the curse is retribution. You know, we, we can come to God oftentimes and say, God can be so harsh here. He can be so cruel. Why didn't you just forgive him? Well, it's, it's not like they weren't warned. And God very clearly said, do not eat of this tree. If you eat of it, you will die. There's real retribution. There's real justice. God is a God of justice. And his justice is good. He makes things that are not right, right. When there's disorder in the world, God corrects it. He fixes it. He is a just and good 
God. In fact, our, our, our inability to fear God or to talk about the fear of the Lord, our inability to think about the justice of God just shows how man-centered our society is. If we were truly God-centered, if we truly believed that we exist for his glory, if we truly desired the glory of God, when we thought about sin, we would immediately desire justice. We would immediately desire God to restore his authority over all things by bringing justice. But we don't live like that, do we? Because we, we, only, we have a very self-centered view of the world. We, we desire, we, we demand on God's mercy. We have a very self-centered understanding of the world and not a God-centered understanding of the world. There was a consequence. There was retribution. And I just want you to hear this. There's a consequence for your sin too. There's retribution for your sin too. This is a warning to us to fear the living God. But secondly, the curse shows the reality of separation from God. You know, all of these things, anybody have an argument with a friend? Anybody have an argument in marriage? Is marriage sometimes hard? It's a reminder to you. This is what it's like when we ignore this. This is what it's like when we're separated from God. What about childbearing? The pain of childbearing, you know, poor Paige was literally sick the entire nine months with all three of our kids. What a reminder. <laughs> and then, of course, just child rearing. Man, how hard is that? How impossible does that seem? It should be so easy. It's this delightful thing, but it's so hard. It's this reminder that we're separated from God, that things are not as they are supposed to be. What about this? I mean, a lot of us have good jobs. I certainly do. I love my job, but man, it can be hard. The ground can feel hard, and it seems like there's unfair things that happen, and things like things don't work out the way you want them to work out. They're all reminders that we're separated from God. And then thirdly, the curse actually serves as a great reminder to us of how deeply we need God's grace. I love what Will said. How do you approach God? Do you approach God in his grace or in your achievement? And a lot of times it's those, it's those days when work feels cursed. It's those days when you feel like you failed as a parent. It's those days when you're fighting with your best friend who you love that you cry out to God and you ask for his mercy that you're dependent on his grace, that you see that he is Lord and that you are not. This brings us to our fourth point. We've looked at, um, let's go to the next slide. We've, we've looked at God's order in creation and his blessing in work, his curse of work, but finally the curse of life itself. The final statement of this passage, I'm kind of separating it out because it's so haunting. You'll return to the ground, Adam, you return to the ground. God said to the man, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. And then he says, you will return to the ground. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't return to the ground immediately, right? What God does, it's not that God kills him. What God does is he separates himself. Death is the result of being separated from God. And eventually, in chapter 5, it doesn't happen here in chapter 3, but in chapter 5, Adam does die. And the refrain, if you've ever read Genesis 5, 
It's this reminder that everybody dies. And he died, and he died, and he died. Over and over again, all throughout the chapter, every generation dies. There's a little play on words in the text. Adam will return to the ground. The Hebrew for ground is Adama. Adam will become Adama. Adam will return to the ground. Adam will become Adama again. The breath of life will be taken away from him. And it will be taken away from us. This is the result of the curse. This is the result of our sin. We were supposed to live forever with God, but we have disordered this thing. Adam will become Adama. My aunt actually passed away this week. My dad's sister. And my dad got to go down. And um, he and I talked for a long time yesterday about it. And he said, you know, it was, it was a very powerful thing. I mean, she had gotten ill and she was on a ventilator and they removed her from the ventilator. And so he got to sit there with his two sisters and, and watch her die. And he said she was there for about 45 minutes and then, and then passed on. And he talked about that experience and he just said, you know, I, I couldn't help but think as I was watching her there breathing dying, that God gives us the breath of life, that, that life, our, our life itself comes from God, that God gives us the breath of life, that we depend on God for the breath of life. When Adam sinned and was separated from God in his sin, he was removed from the garden, he was removed from the tree of life, he was removed from the breath of life, and so Adam was destined to become Adamah. So where is our hope? Well, this brings me to the final point. And that is God's continued work. We've looked at God's order, his blessing, his curse of work, his curse of life. But the good news for us is that God continues to work. Now, he's not working in creation. This account tells us that in six days, God created the world. That was his work of creation, and he rested. God's not continually creating, right? The creation has been completed. The, the creation is obviously living, right? So it's producing new life. It, 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 is, uh, it, it has been given this sense of um, regeneration. But God's work of creation has been completed. And so what is God's work now? What is God doing now? And we learn in the scripture that that now the work of God and the work that God is doing actually right now is that in this fallen world, in this world that is dying, in this world that is enduring the curse, he is bringing about new life. He is bringing about redemption. He is bringing about a restoration. He's remaking this world. Paul in 1, Corinthians 15, in 1 Corinthians 15, it really explains this. And the analogy that he uses, and I love this, is the analogy of gardening. Think about that. In the very beginning, what was Adam? He was a gardener. And so God said, take these little seeds, Adam, and put them into the ground and plant them and watch what happens. And for the rest of human history, I mean, even to today, some of you are gardeners, right? Humanity is still gardening. We still depend on gardening. 
We still depend on some sort of planting and reaping for our whole life. And I believe that the whole purpose of gardening, (laughs) the whole reason God set it up that way, is because what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, he's, he's showing us his new work. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Paul says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. What Paul is explaining here is this. This is the curse of Adam, the disordering. Adam listened to the creature He disobeyed the word of God. He went totally out of order, and we have been feeling that disorder from that time to this. But Christ came and perfectly obeyed the order of God. He always listened to the voice of his father. He acted in creation as he should. And instead of receiving the blessing that he deserved for his obedience, he received our curse. These curses have come to him. It, it's, it's no accident in the, in, in, the, in the death of Jesus that thorns are involved. It's no accident in the death of Jesus that, 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 that pain is involved. It's no accident in the death of Jesus, obviously, that death is involved. Jesus endured this curse. His own people strove against him. He endured the curse, the pain of work. He was separated from his people and he died. But in Jesus enduring the curse, he has brought to us through faith in his death and in his overcoming of death and his resurrection, the blessing of God to us. And this is what Paul explains. He's talking about the resurrection, that we through faith can be made alive in Christ. Look at verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but someone will ask, how can the dead be raised? If we're all gonna die, how can we be raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul says, you foolish person, what a silly question. Haven't you paid attention to gardening? What you sow does not come to life until it dies. You have to bury the seed. You have to, in a sense, put the seed to death so that something new will come alive. And he says, but what you sow does not, um, is not the body that comes to be, but it's just a bare kernel perhaps wheat or some other grain. You, you put the seed in the ground, but, but what comes out when the seed dies, as it were, is it some whole new kind of life. Look at verse 42. It is, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised? What God brings back to work, what, what this new work of God, what God brings back to work, what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown in the way of Adam, the natural body, the spiritual or the, uh, the man of dust, but it's raised in a spiritual body. Look at verse 47. The first man was from earth, a man of dust, but the second man is a man of heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've been born in the image of man and dust, we shall also, through faith in Jesus, bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the good news of the gospel, that God has come to rescue you. He's come to restore you. He's come to take your cursed life and make it alive, imperishable, powerful, strong in the Lord as we look to Jesus in faith. And so here's, here's everything. Here's everything I know. You can either live your whole life in the way of the man of dust, or you can live your whole life in the way of the man of heaven. That's it. That's, that's your life. That's, that's all I can tell you. You're either going to spend your life living for the man of dust, living for these imperishable things, working for some sort of identity that the world may promise, working for things that the, the land of dust promises, or, or by God's grace, the way of heaven will somehow pierce through this dusty world and you'll see it and you'll believe You'll believe that God really has shown you love in Christ, that Jesus has really died for your sin, that Jesus has really been made alive and he desires to make you alive. You'll see the man of heaven and you'll follow him. You'll follow him. Who are you living for? Who, who are you following? What is your life? Are you, are you living in the way of the man of dust? Are you living in the way of the man of heaven? <laughs> are you working or not working? <laughs> In the way of the man of dust, are you working or not working, resting in the way of the man of heaven? What is your life? Who are you following? Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you for the shape that it gives us. We're confused people, Lord. We love things that are created, we're often deceived by them. We often listen to the voice of the serpent. But a new man has come, the man of heaven, and he's died for us and he has taken on the curse that we so deserved and he's invited us into his kingdom life. Lord, I pray that we would live in it. May we follow him today, Lord, with faith. Lord, give us faith Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, Lord. Give us faith. Give us faith, Father. Give us faith until we don't need it anymore. Give us faith to see the man of heaven, to follow him faithfully, to see his way, to love your order. Give us faith, I ask. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake, Lord.